All right. We are continuing in our series in Ecclesiastes, and if you want to open your Bibles or tap there on your phone, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and they're probably wondering why that's not up there, or it is up there, I don't know. It is up there, good, great. I don't know if that was me or them, but it's up there. Uh, So we're in Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 11, we're looking at the first six verses of chapter 11, and immediately following a chapter, chapter 10... 11 follows 10, makes sense, Um, immediately following the chapter on uh, examination of folly um, and uh, the detriment of foolishness, we get a little snippet here from the teacher, Koaleth, uh, in verses 1 to 6 on how to live wisely, specifically in terms of generosity and investment. And you think about your own life and just our natural inclination We start to wonder at times whether the things we're doing, the things we're investing in, where we are pouring our time into, are really making a difference. We pray for our friends, but are our prayers answered? We give to the poor, but does it ever change the condition of their lives? We share the gospel, but do the people that we share the gospel with get saved? It seems sometimes we never know the results of what we pour out. When we don't see what God's accomplishing with what we consider to be our investments into the kingdom or our efforts in gospel ministry, it's easy to become a little jaded, a little close-handed, a little cautious in where we invest our time and energy because we don't see immediate returns. And so we think, we'll only give to the poor if I can see how they're going to use it or I can see an immediate benefit to them. And, you know, I'm only going to invest in sort of kingdom ministry things if I know that it's going to work. We pray in safe ways because we don't expect God to do anything dramatic. And we give in safe ways, you know, because we want to make sure that we are in control of what is going on. And it can lead us to live lives that are close-handed. But the teacher would say that the risk and the uncertainty of outcomes is actually a reason to live open-handed. It's a reason to live generously and invest wisely. And so the preacher tells us in verses 1 to 6 to live boldly and not let uncertainty or unknowns hold us back. It is wise for the people of God to invest in somewhat foolish ways. Live open-handed with both means and outcomes. So let's look at verses 1 to 6 and see what the teacher has to say. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion into seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good." So if we unpack this text in a fairly straightforward manner this morning, I think we'll see the structure is something like this. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 are a pair of related commands or imperatives. Uh, Verses 3 and 4 are a warning if those commands are ignored. 
Verse 5 is an incentive to follow the command, and verse 6 is the command, the warning, and the incentive combined and repeated. So let's first look at the pair of commands that we are given in this text. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. So cast and divide. Those are the commands that Solomon gives us. And the teaching here is fairly clear by Ecclesiastes standards, um, but because we're dealing with Hebrew wisdom literature that's 2,700 years old, it's going to be a little obscure to us. So the teacher's illustration here is of throwing bread on water in order to find it later definitely fits the obscure category. Why would you throw bread on the water? Is it slices of bread, I wonder? Is it whole loaves of bread? Is it the unleavened flatbread? Why would you throw it on the water? And clearly these pieces of bread are floating away because they disappear for days and then they come back again. Does not bread that's been thrown on the water and floating around for days get soggy? Doesn't it sink? I'm trying to figure out what this metaphor means. And if it comes back many days later, isn't it moldy now? What are you trying to say, Solomon? Aren't the birds and the fish going to have been at this loaf of bread the days that it was maybe floating or sinking in the water? But I don't think we're supposed to get tripped up on overanalyzing this metaphor. Or maybe Solomon realized it would be confusing. So he adds another command saying, divide your portion to seven, even to eight. So that helps clarify. This is about having something, your bread, your portion, and portioning it out to others. Casting your bread on the waters and dividing your portion has some bearing on generosity. What should our generosity be like? Don't hesitate to cast your bread, what you have, to others in various directions. And even though it seems to simply be gone, maybe soggy, maybe sank, maybe eaten, you may find there is a surprising return to this bread that is thrown on the water. You wouldn't expect it back, but there's this surprising return many days later. There's a repayment for your generosity that comes back. And he reinforces this by saying, divide your portion seven, even eight times. Of course, seven is the number of completion or perfection in Hebrew symbolism. And so to give seven portions was to give perfectly or to give completely. And to give eight portions is to give beyond what would be complete. In Hebrew, to do something the eighth time is a bit like the hockey coach who says his team gave 110%. It's impossible to give 110%, but my team gave it. Well, you can't give eighth. You can't give beyond perfection. But here Solomon says, give seven portions. Give completely. Give perfectly. In fact, give an eighth portion. Give beyond perfect giving. It's everything plus more. Nehemiah actually gives us an example of this in Nehemiah 8. He says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. So this idea that if you have things, take your portion and divide it to those who don't. You don't know what misfortune may come on the earth, so don't hoard your bread. Divide your portion with others. It's yours. You have it. But the teacher says to cast and divide what is yours. And that may not be our first instinct. In fact, I know that even as I just say to you, take what is yours and cast it on the water, take what is yours and divide it seven or eight times and give it away to others, 
a part of us starts to hesitate just a little bit or a lot. As soon as the Bible tells us to give away what is ours, the excuses and conditions we want to put on it start springing into our minds. Well, you know, there's conditions on that, right? Like, I don't have to just give it away. I don't just throw it foolishly out on the water, do I? Well, there's no conditions here. And that's why these imperatives, these commands, are given to us, because we're not prone to follow suggestions in this area. If the Bible just suggested that we give away the things that are ours, we would say, well, it's just a suggestion. So the Bible doesn't suggest it. The Bible commands it. It says, do it. Cast your bread Divide your portion. Another sense of these verses, and I think both senses are right. First one is generosity, but the other one is to take them as instruction for prudent investment. Or perhaps even better said, these verses reframe our ideas about generosity so that we see generosity as an investment. Generosity is not a loss. Generosity has a return. These verses reframe things that tell us to have a stance towards material goods that says, as I share my portion with others, as I cast my bread out on the waters, I will not see it simply as a loss, but as an investment, because I know that it will have a return and not a loss. The image of casting bread on the waters makes even more sense, perhaps, in this way, because it's a picture of sending your goods out on ships to be traded at distant ports. I think maybe that's what Solomon had in mind when he said, cast your bread upon the waters. It's a metaphor, it's a picturesque way of saying or talking about investments. You, you put your goods on a ship and send them out on the water, and many days later, your reward returns to you across the water. So divide your portion, invest it in seven ships or eight, invest widely because you don't know what disaster befalls the earth. Could be a monsoon or a tidal wave or pirates or whatever takes a ship out. But if you invest widely, eh, some of your ships will come back and some will succeed and you will receive a return. And it all takes time. The ships return after many days. When you invest here, Solomon to some degree is saying you've got to be patient. You're going to give generously. You're going to pray fervently. You are going to invest in the poor. You're going to uh, invest, pour your life into the lives of others. And you may not see an immediate return. It may seem like many days before that comes back. But you need to be patient. So there's patience kind of baked into this instruction. If we were to turn to 1 Kings 10 to 14, we might see Solomon speaking of himself. We read, we read there that he sent out fleets of ships nearly every three years to distant ports, and they brought back gold and silver and exotic animals. And so Solomon knows something about waiting for a return. But these are just metaphors and allegories, and being metaphors and allegories, we already sense that this is not just about generosity and finance. Or wise methods of investing. There is a spiritual reality that these common examples are pointing us towards. It's not just about money, but it's about how will a wise person who fears God lead their lives. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher has been contrasting how a person who fears God is to live against a person who does not fear God. How the wise live in contrast to the fool. The fool says there is no God. But the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so here we can understand that Solomon is saying there may be people out there who do not fear God and who are unknowingly foolish because they do not cast their bread upon the water. They do not divide their portion seven, even eight times. 
but the one who fears God does these things. So this text is describing what attitude or what posture our life should take towards others. In other words, rather than hold all of our bread and all of our portion for ourselves, Solomon would say, be open-handed financially and spiritually. Work at many kingdom purposes that some might bear fruit. Some ministries we start, some relationships we pour into do not pay off. But if we are diligent in investing ourselves wisely, without being risk-averse, without being hung up on perfect and instant results, then God will provide a return to those who cast their bread, who divide their portion. In fact, if we put the two metaphors together, we really see that Solomon is telling us to consider generosity as an investment. And as we will see in verse 5, when God is brought into the picture, even when it seems we're just casting things into uncertainty, it is really an investment in what God can give a return on. So that's our pair of commands. Cast your bread, divide, and invest wisely, widely. Take some risk. And then the teacher supplies a warning to back up these instructions in verses 3 and 4. He says, If the clouds are full, they pour out the rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. So there's our farmer. He's watching the skies. He sees the possible rain clouds and the wind, and he's trying to figure out when should he sow his crop. The farmer is pondering at the edge of his field. But everything's uncertain. We don't know where the clouds will drop the rain. We don't know what direction the tree will fall. Wherever the tree falls, that's where it falls. Wherever it rains, that's where it rains. We can't control any of that. All we can control is when we sow and harvest. But this farmer is watching the wind. He's observing the clouds. But if he just watches, trying to get his work timing and placement perfect, he will never have a crop to reap. And so people who will only act when everything is perfect will never act. People who need every question answered before they can agree to move forward will never move. Now, there's a few possible motives for people who live this way. It could be a paralysis by analysis. You know, some of us, our brains are just obsessed with calculating the implications of everything or reacting to every minor shift that we detect in the people we're working with or the things that we're doing. And we are so busy analyzing how to do something perfectly that we never actually get our hand into the bag of seeds and throw any seed to be sown and grown. We're so busy analyzing the field and the soil composition that no planting work gets done. So you can have paralysis by analysis, or perhaps it's fear, fear of failure, fear of not getting the crop results we hoped for, so we don't ever start because it seems the effort might be wasted because we're afraid we're not going to get what we hoped for. Now, I've been here at Lakeside for 10 years, and over that time, we have done a lot of different ministries. Some of them are still running, and we love to see the immediate success of them. Some of them we planned with a diligent level of care and preparation and analysis. Think of our potential partnership with Minden back in 2018, before COVID and all of that stuff. And we were working that out and met with their elders and met with the pastor, and we did things in certain ways and spent a lot of time. And that ministry barely lasted a season. Even with all the preparation that we did and all the planning that we did, we tried to analyze everything and 
The rain just wasn't falling at that time for that ministry. At the same time, there's other ministries that we dove into on a couple of weeks' notice with very little planning and very much trust. Last summer, we got a phone call. Scripture Union said, we've got an extra camp at the end of August. You guys want to do a third VBS week? And we're thinking our volunteers will all say no. (laughs) We don't want to do a third week. But we just boldly said, yeah, there's 60 more kids that could hear the gospel. So let's do another sports camp, even though we haven't prepared for it, haven't planned for it, have no idea how it's going to work. And it was a great success. And we ran sports camp again this year. And it's been lovely in reaching the community. So some things you plan and they don't work. Some things you don't plan and they work. Some ministries ran here at Lakeside. They ended over 20 years ago, but they still bear fruit in the community today. I still hear people talking about Celebrate Recovery and the impact that it had on their life or their family. And during the 10 years I've been here, disaster has fell on all of us. We had a dozen excuses to stop doing ministry and to withdraw and to be close-handed during the pandemic. And we had to react and reinvest in a dozen different ways in a matter of days, let alone a week or two. A week would have been a, like, just a gift of time during COVID to react to something. Sometimes we had from Friday until Sunday morning to figure out what we were doing. But was everything attempted that we did perfect? No. But did much of what we did continue ministry and succeed and bear fruit? Absolutely. Was it ever an option for us in our ministry to simply say, this is risky. We have no idea what's coming next. Let's wait and see. Let's shut things down. Let's try to close down our ministries rather than figure out ways that they can go ahead. It was never a stance that we would consider that we would not do ministry. Whatever the risk, whatever the uncertainty, whatever the unknown, we knew it wasn't going to be perfect. We had to change how we planted. We had to change how we invested. We had to do ministry without an assessment and an analysis of what was going on. But our posture towards the unknown was to keep sowing through ministry and trust God for the results. And not everything we try here at Lakeside works perfectly. Actually, none of our ministries work perfectly. Nothing we do is risk-free. We don't always know the volunteers we're going to get, the people we're going to get, the way it's going to come across, who's going to interact this way or that way. Somebody's going to forget something. Something will be overlooked. There's always risk. There's always uncertainty. Nothing we try here is ever perfect. And sometimes we will do things and we may never see the results in that ministry season. We may not even see the results in our lifetime. But because we trust in God, we can view risk as an incentive to try rather than an excuse to withdraw. And this is what Solomon teaches in verse 5 after the warning. The warning is basically, if you just watch, you will never plant. And in fact, uncertainty is an incentive to act. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. You don't know the way the wind blows or how babies are formed. And the word here for wind actually is the same word that's used for spirit. As the spirit moves, as the wind moves, you need context to know whether you mean wind or spirit. So it could mean spirit. So this could perhaps be more subtly interpreted or more profoundly interpreted. We don't know how the spirit of a person comes to a body that is being formed in a womb. How does God do that? How does God take the physical body being knit together, a mystery in its own mind, in its own part, in the the womb, and then 
brings a spirit to, to come into that physical body. These are things that are too profound for us to understand. And Solomon says, you don't know that, and in the same way you don't know that and will never know that, you do not know the activity of God. You do not know the outcome of your casting and your sowing into the kingdom of God. And so don't hold back on it. Sometimes in my weaker moments, I think it would be helpful if the armchair quarterbacks and the backseat drivers of the church would remember this. Because there's always that one person when you try something that's a little bit risky and they have the gift of 2020 hindsight who will gladly tell you how obvious it was to them that you were doing it wrong and you were wasting time and energy and investment in a particular ministry or doing what you did the way you did. After they think it failed, they are ready to say, I told you so. You were doing it wrong. You were investing unwisely and it was all a waste. Actually, no, you don't know that it was a waste. You don't know that that ministry failed. Nobody knows what has failed and what has succeeded because we do not know how God uses our sowing any more than we know how babies are knit together in the womb. We don't know if it was fruitless. God is sovereign over all of our outcomes. And so when people who fear God and trust God see risk and uncertainty, Solomon says that's not an incentive to hold back. That is an incentive to invest. One of the biggest mysteries of God that we don't understand is how he works all things to our salvation. Why did God choose us to receive his open-handed grace? Why did Jesus pour out the portion of his righteousness that was rightly his onto us? Why does God sow the seed of his word even though he knows, according to Jesus' parable, that probably three-quarters of it falls on the wrong kind of soil anyway? Maybe one seed in four falls on fruitful soil. And yet the word is still sown. The sower still sows, even knowing that some of it may land in places that it won't work. And we are told to sow. Sow it onto rocky ground and onto roads and onto thorns and onto thistles because some of what we sow might fall on soil that bears 30, 60, or 100 times. And so we don't know the outcome of our generosity and our investment in the kingdom as we pour into the sowing of God's word. God is sovereign. We don't know. And then in verse 6, the command and the warning and the incentive is combined. So the teacher summarizes, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So sow or cast, or divide. Don't be idle, because you don't know, because God may make both of them successful, but some of them fail. What's worse than making an imperfect attempt at ministry? Doing nothing. To sit back and just take no risk, because you're afraid you don't know the outcome, is not an option. Do not be idle. So in the morning, so in the evening, so all day long, because one time may fail or maybe both will be good. You don't know, and nobody else can tell you they know because they don't know either. It's true that not everything succeeds, but that's not an excuse to hold back. So how do we process then this then as people who do fear God, who do trust God? How, how do we apply this to our own lives? 
Well, we can think about our spiritual investment strategy. Is your spiritual investment strategy characterized by many endeavors and confidence in God, in open-handed generosity and open-handed pouring out into others and into ministries diversely? Or is your spiritual investment strategy timid? Do you hang on to your bread? Do you hang on to your portion? Whether it's finances or time or whatever it is. Do you guard, you know, you have those guardrails up to make sure that, you know, you don't overspend in the spiritual kingdom, in the spiritual world. Because, you know, you're not sure whether that's going to pay back. I know if I spend the time with, on myself, then I know the payback I'll get for that. I don't know what I'm going to get if I invest in ministry and in the kingdom. Is your life one of hoarding and guarding or of open-handed casting and sowing? In terms of your time, in terms of your energy, in terms of your relationships and finances, do we say, I I don't know what the gain is. I, I know if I invest in myself, I know if I spend the time on me, I know what I'll get out of it. I don't know what I'll get out of it if I spend it at, you know, teaching Sunday school or at VBS or doing this ministry or spending my time with those people. So I'm going to put my energy and my time and my money where I know it does me good. Or are you open-handed? Do you trust God that his outcomes, even if it looks wasted, you think you taught Sunday school for three years, you don't know if those kids learned anything. But you know what? Then 15 years later, you bump into that kid on the street. And you thought, you know, teaching three kids Sunday school for years was a waste of time. And you bump into that kid on the street 15 years later, and they say, you know, it was that Sunday school class when I heard that Jesus loved me no matter what, no matter what I did. And when I was eight years old, I hadn't done anything yet. But you know what? When I was 19, I needed to hear that, and I remembered. You don't know what your ministry accomplishes and what God is doing with it. So how does this inform Lakeside and how we do ministry? We are going to take some risks. We're going to find ways that things can be done rather than find excuses why they can't be done. If a ministry opportunity might bear fruit, then we will be inclined in our posture to try it rather than not try it. We're going to try lots of things because we don't know what God will do with what we try. And some of our ministries won't pan out exactly as we think they should. They may end in ways that many would consider a failure. But even when we don't know how God has used them, God will use them. Perhaps the best way to describe this lesson of the teacher is in these terms of one of posture that I've been using, or the stance that we take with regard to trusting God in our engagement with the world. To cast and to sow in many directions and many places. To view uncertainty as an incentive to try rather than an incentive to hesitate. To be open-handed and prone to give and prone to act rather than prone to hesitate and prone to withhold. That's how people who know God are able to be and to act. People who don't know God view risk and uncertainty as a reason not to do something. People who trust in a sovereign God see risk and uncertainty as an incentive to do something. Because God is sovereign, we get to be those open-handed, gracious, giving people who pour themselves out for others in a dozen directions and not worry about whether every outcome is perfect or every result is profitable to us or immediately seen. Because God knows what we do not know. 
and we trust God. The alternative to that is to be the kind of person who grasps, close-handed, who hesitates, who finds excuses not to act, who parcels out little drips and drabs of resources grudgingly, offering their time because they're fearful of losing it or not having it for themselves and not gaining from it, and in the end offer God nothing with which he can bear fruit because they never sowed. The sower of the parable is faithful to sow the word. How do you sow the word? First, we have to have the word. We have to have the seed in our sack, and so we have to read it and know it. And then once you have it, you got to sow it. And we sow it when we teach it to our kids and their devotions. We sow it when we pass it on as wisdom to our friends, when we take it with us to the campus, when we speak it in the nursing home, when we teach it in Sunday school, when we gather and discuss it in small group, when we sing it on stage, when we pray at the prayer meetings. We are sowing the word in every way that we engage with our time and our finances and our resources in ministry. When we send people on missions trips, when we support missionaries on other sides of the world, All of this is sowing, and the more we sow, 7, 8, 100%, 110%, the more we sow, the more God has for us to reap in the future. We want to support gospel-sharing ministry, gospel-speaking missions. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this. He couldn't sum it up any better. He even starts with, the point is this. That's exactly what I would say. (laughs) Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It actually is that simple. Ecclesiastes just says, don't let risk and uncertainty scare you, because you don't know what God's going to do. You may hold a small group or a youth meeting or a Sunday school, you may invite people to pray and you're discouraged, you know, because I only had three guys show up. I was expecting 17. Maybe you only got one. But that one was the one that God intended to be there. Don't worry about the 15 that aren't there. God brought you that one. And you don't know what your ministry to that one might do. Galatians 9, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Jesus is the Lord of a surprising harvest. Surprising to us, not surprising to him. We don't know what God may do with what we sow, but he will reap the harvest. So back to the commands. Cast your bread on the surface of the water, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. These aren't suggestions. These are commands. Cast, divide, sow. And God will do surprising things that you may or may not see the result of. I just want to apply this in sort of a church family business thing here at the end. Um, I want to um, thank God first and foremost, and also those in the church who were faithful that, remember we were talking about we weren't sure if we were going to finish our giving budget last year on budget. We actually went over budget in giving. So thank you and praise God to that. So you're casting and you're sowing. Good job. Giving to the kingdom. The other thing that we did during COVID because we couldn't do it is we stopped 
passing, having an offering time, like a, like a worshipful offering time. And not that that was bad or wrong. We need to give worshipfully, and we just feel like now is the time. We're kind of out of here. We want to reintroduce a more worshipful, thoughtful time to giving into our services. So that's just an FYI to you. We're going to reintroduce an offering time that we can give and cast and sow and divide in a worshipful and thoughtful way. Um, and if you're giving online and electronically, continue to do that. You know, that's not necessarily for you. It's just a time in our service that we can be purposeful in remembering that. And then at communion Sundays, we'll still do our special benevolent love offering. And so there are many ways that you can cast and divide and sow into the kingdom of God. And these instructions here for us are to taken seriously and to understand that we don't have to worry about risk. We don't have to worry about outcomes. The harvest is with God.